Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Today's topic was requested through our podcast survey from a listener in Greene County, Ohio. So we're excited that you guys have some requests. If anyone is thinking of topics they'd like to hear, make sure you fill out our survey. We'll have the link um, in the show notes today. So the topic that was requested was to get more information about industrial solar farms. Um, Solar farms have been popping up across Ohio and they've really jumped in numbers significantly over the past few years. Some of the lease rates offered by the solar companies are too good to pass up, but they come with that 30 year or longer commitment. Today, we're gonna discuss why companies are now interested in large scale solar production in Ohio and what landowners should consider before entering into a lease that may span multiple generations. We've got Eric Romick joining us to provide some expertise in this area. Welcome, Eric. Could you take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Uh, thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, my name is Eric Romick, and I am a Ohio State University Extension Field Specialist for Energy Education. So I'm based out of the Wyandotte County Extension Office, but I work statewide on uh, topics that, that range from you know what we refer to as energy management. So looking at a lot of um, uh, peak demand and energy efficiency issues in livestock buildings, um, a lot of advanced energy metering, uh, power quality type metering uh, with those facilities, and, and just ways that farmers can save money um, through efficiency and, and peak demand strategies, uh, all the way to topics on behind the meter solar system design and financial modeling. Um, and, and then, of course, what we're talking about today, uh, utility scale solar development, where uh, we we help out with everything from uh, guidelines to entering into to good lease agreements um, to to doing some economic impact uh, input output modeling um, and then also uh, some you know things in terms of you know what can we do to to make this type of of development better moving forward and and we're testing out different vegetation management strategies uh, that utility scale developers may consider in the future. We're excited that you're willing to share your expertise. We know you've got years of experience with energy generation, seeing as how you're from Wyandotte County and you got to see one of the first large scale projects um, go into production in Ohio. So we've really seen the interest in this area grow a lot. If we look back to just 2009, Ohio had only 14 public utility solar projects and most of those were small scale. Uh, Why do you think that interest has grown so much in solar projects in Ohio recently? Yeah, so um, you're right. I mean, um, a lot of this was really driven by policy and um, and incentive programs. So initially, you know, Ohio passed Senate Bill 221 uh, in 2008, and and that piece of legislation housed the state's uh, alternative energy portfolio standards. Um, In general, it was mandating our investor-owned utilities to diversify their electric generation portfolio to include a percentage of renewable energy generation. And so that was one of the things that that really kind of kicked off a lot of interest in in solar technology and and also wind um, in Ohio. And you're right, the Wyandotte County Solar Project, uh, Wyandotte Solar, was uh, was built in 2009, uh, really in response to that legislation. Um, you know, since then, we've really seen um, a lot of, uh, of development with solar. Now, 
it's one of, it's, it's important to kind of keep everything in perspective. So as you look at it, uh, as we sit here today, we've grown from 14 certified projects in Ohio, um, certified solar projects, to, uh, to, to 2,963, um, as, as I looked at the report last month. So, you know, you'd say significant growth, but one of the things to keep in mind is, um, you know, when you look at the actual generation capacity of these projects, they're very small. And so historically, we've seen a lot of development in Ohio, but most of that was was what we refer to as behind the meter solar projects. So projects that are that are built and owned by homeowners, business own, owners, farmers, um, and they're installed to offset the electrical loads of, of those specific locations. Um, what we've seen here in the last, I would say, three years is a transition to you know, we're seeing less and less behind the meter development. So uh, really since uh, 2017, we've seen a pretty steady reduction in the number of, of small scale certified projects, but we've seen a big increase in the number of utility scale solar projects. And the difference, I guess, kind of that, that threshold in terms of utility scale project in Ohio, any electrical generation facility greater than 50 megawatts has to go through the Ohio Power Siting Board for siting approval. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now with, with this utility scale solar development is we currently have 38 projects that have submitted applications to the power siting board for review. Uh, the total combined uh, generation capacity of those, of those projects would be uh, just over 6,800 megawatts of capacity. Um, I always like to remind people that solar energy has historically had a 16 to 18% capacity factor uh, these utility scale solar projects because of uh, single axis trackers tend to have a little bit higher capacity factor ranging from 22 to 24%. Thanks Eric. It's been really interesting to see this and there's been, you know, talk among communities of how much these land leases are going for so that has a lot of people interested and really what are these companies looking for? inciting where they're going to site their solar projects? Um, yeah, so it's a great question and, and one that we get quite a bit in, in terms of, you know, why Ohio? Why are we seeing a lot of this development in Ohio? Um, a couple points, I guess, to that. So number one, I would say we're not alone. Um, as you look to, you know, other states across the Midwest, this has kind of been a regional transition where we're starting to see more and more solar development across the Midwest. Um, you know, you look at um, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Illinois, New York, Pennsylvania, they're all dealing with the same types of, of uh, development trends that we're seeing here in Ohio. Um, with that said, you know, a couple of things that developers are looking for is, you know, number one, they like ground that is um, relatively flat. And so we, we certainly have access to that. The other thing that's really important is just having an interconnection point. And, you know, it, it doesn't do any good to have a, a thousand acre solar project if there's nowhere to, to, you know, effectively and economically deliver the power to where we can get it into the transmission grid um, and, and to, to markets that can use it. And so um, when you look at the state of Ohio, we have a, a, a lot of transmission infrastructure um, that's tied into the, to the PJM uh, interconnect, which is uh, a very desirable market, um, a, a large regional transmission uh, market that has a lot of potential for developers. And more specifically, I would say, as you kind of look at where the development trends have taken place in Ohio, um, most of that transmission infrastructure, uh, I should say the strongest transmission infrastructure in the state is located in the southwest portion of Ohio. 
Um, that just happens to be where the strongest solar resource is as well. So as, as you look at the state, you kind of go from, from Youngstown, Caddy Corner down to Cincinnati and our solar resource, you know, ranges from like 3.7, a global horizontal radiance index of 3.87 up in the Youngstown Canton area up to like 4.2 down in the Dayton Cincinnati region. So that's one of the reasons that we've seen so much development pressure take place in the Southwest portion of the state. Um, with that said, you know, I can say based on receiving phone calls from landowners that are, that are, you know, having questions about lease agreements that, you know, this is, this is a development that's taking place all across the state. Uh, last I looked, I think there were 28 of the 88 counties had projects that were that were officially submitted to the power siting board and that number is growing every day i think that's interesting that ohio is a target you know just out of curiosity where do we rank in terms of that solar radiation compared to the rest of the u.s so when you look at the the sun index which is basically a measurement of direct sunlight um, that's going to be impacted by your latitude and then also the the average cloud cover Ohio ranks 23rd in, in, the, in the solar potential. Um, however, when you look at actual generation, um, in, in 2020, Ohio generated 438,000 megawatt hours from solar electric, which ranked 28th when you compare it to other states. Um, it is important to note, I mean, 438,000 megawatt hours, it sounds like a lot, but um, just keep in mind that that still represented less than 1% of Ohio's total electrical net electrical generation. So um, while it's growing portion, it's still a very small portion in our overall energy mix. For the second part of this podcast, I'd like to focus on what landowners should think about if you are approached by one of these companies to get involved in a solar project. So first off, what kind of time commitment are we looking at? So in terms of what landowners should consider, I guess, um, selfishly I'd like to put a plug out for our um, solar leasing checklist. And we have a, a, a landowner's guide to solar leasing that has a lot of really good information. Um, I partnered with Peggy Hall, who's our ag law specialist. And Peggy and I were able to um, review a number of, of lease agreements and try and identify uh, what were common themes? What was what were we seeing that was good for landowners or um, concerning possibly, and 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 then of course otherwise. So, uh, as I think about important things for landowners and the time commitment, it's that's kind of the first the first issue is that it is a very long time commitment. Um, you know, when you add up the various terms and, and options that are included in these lease agreements, uh, these 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 commitments can be thirty to fifty year commitments. Um, so it's, you know, it's really important to have a, a long-term perspective on, you know, what, what does this agreement mean to your, you know, to your farm, your business, your family, um, and who's going to be in charge 30, 40, 50 years from now. You know, some of the other questions or issues that, that we see um, that, that commonly come up, uh, obviously a big one is, is, you know, what's the lease rate that, that they're offering? And that's really a, a kind of a moving target. It's, it's, I've seen, you know, talking with landowners, I've heard everything from 800 to 1200 that I would say is, is a fair range right now. Um, and that would be per acre annually. Um, they all tend to have different escalation clauses built into them. Some of them will have, you know, a fixed escalation rate annually. Um, some of them will 
reevaluate and, and adjust based on, on land values uh, every so many years. Some of them will, I've seen one that was the best lease rate I've seen in terms of their compensation model. It offered 1% annual escalation above and beyond land inflation values. And so you're always, you know, and, and of course it had a, it, they, it had a smaller principal. I think that one was starting out at like 700 an acre but it really took a lot of the risk and, and the questions in terms of, well, what are, what's going to be the value of land 50 years from now? Um, that With that structure, they knew that they were going to be in a good position. Um, but with that said, and, and with, with, um, you know, with, with the potential earnings aside, there's a lot of things that you really need to think about um, to make sure you're entering into a good agreement. Um, taxation is, is a question that we get a lot. And one of the things that Peggy and I recommend is just to make sure that in your lease agreement, um, you, you clearly state that you know, any change in, um, in tax value or tax assessment is going to be the responsibility of the developers. And if you are going to convert an entire track um, you know, from row crop production into solar production, um, it's it's going to come out of CAUV. So there's going to be a CAUV recoupment penalty that you need to consider. And so working with a, an attorney to make sure that you have those types of things ironed out clearly in your in your lease agreement um, will we'll make sure that you're, you're not exposed down the road. One of the things I, I always caution landowners with is, you know, there's a couple of different types of developers and, and not to say one's, you know, one's good or one's bad, um, but it's important to recognize who you're working with. And so a question I often recommend they ask early on is whether or not the developer is what we would refer to as an owner operator, meaning, you know, a developer that's going to, you know, develop, put the project together, develop it, build it and own it for the next 30, 40 years. Um, in that case, you know, that's going to be the company you're working with, or is it going to be a company that, you know, develops it and then flips it and sells it to somebody else that has interest in, um, you know, and the renewable energy credits or the tax credits. And, you know, in that case, your contact person could be someone else. And so my reason for bringing that up is one of the things I think is critically important is just, just understand as, you, as you're going through this process, if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. And so someone can sit at your dinner table and make a promise to you. That person's probably not going to be there um, when it comes time to see if that's actually going to be carried through. And so um, just make sure that as you think through these little things that um, they're getting included into the leasing agreement. And then the last thing that, um, you know, I really want to point out, I, I you know, um, in the time we have here, and again, you can read the, 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 the checklist or the full, the full bulletin to, to get a lot of the details. But another key point is related to decommissioning. And this is one of the areas that I've had a lot of concern with. Um, however, I think it's it's improving a little bit. Um, but you know, decommissioning is one of the things I think is really important for landowners. And again, you're looking at something that's going to actually be implemented 30, 40, 50 years down the road. But it's it's if it's not in writing, then you know it's 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 not going to necessarily be done in the way that you want it to be done. And so um, a couple points to consider related to decommissioning. Um, anytime you, you look at decommissioning, um, I would really encourage you to, to try and work with the developers so that in your landowner or in your lease agreement, we're, we're dealing with decommissioning cost, not net decommissioning cost. 
And, you know, in general terms, what, what we're seeing is, you know, there's the potential for having some recycling value from the steel or, or even though it's not a, a, a mature market that exists, possibly recycling the modules down the road. Um, that really doesn't impact the landowner, right? And so uh, I, I just encourage landowners to try and get the, the net decommissioning cost language, get that out of the lease agreement and really focus on what's the actual cost of removing it and making sure that the security bonding um, to, to have that site um, removed and remediated is put in place before equipment shows up on site. The, the last piece to, to decommissioning that I think um, we can improve on as, as we work through our lease agreements and working with developers is you know, having an understanding that a lot of times what I see is a real clear statement of what they'll do. So de a decommissioning might um, involve, we'll de-energize the project, we'll remove the modules, we'll remove the racking and any infrastructure to a depth of 36 inches. Uh, we'll grade the site and establish a vegetative cover. And so, you know, that's a good, you know, removal plan, but it's not necessarily a remedi remediation plan. And so, I really encourage uh, both you know developers that I've worked with and, and also landowners to review the you know the oil and gas pipeline remediation standards where you know they worked with ODA and established kind of a three-year monitoring period where after the site was was removed and remediated, you know they did ongoing monitoring for a three-year period to see you know how's the site performing, um, does additional you know, decompaction or, or some type of, of work need to be done to get the site back to where it's, it's producing like it was prior to development. And a, a, another key point to that, if you're going to have a monitoring period, you have to have some, some type of a metric or some type of a baseline to measure it against. And so making sure that you kind of think through that and, and include that in the lease agreement, I, I think is, is going to be critically important as we you know, look ahead 40 or 50 years to think about, you know, how these sites, you know, may be coming out of, of solar production and possibly going back into agricultural production. And this is really important because of, uh, of the scale. And we didn't touch on this earlier, but I think it's worth noting. So, you know, the cost of solar have come down and there's obviously been policy um, developments that are supportive of solar. And so we've seen this massive boom in, in development. And what's happened is it's really uncovered a weakness of solar that we never really considered. And, and that's the fact that a photovoltaic solar cell is, is a technology that has an inherently low power density, meaning that it takes a lot of horizontal surface area to generate a little bit of power. And, you know, as a result, it, it these projects take up a lot of ground. And so, I mentioned earlier that there were 38 um, utility scale projects that have submitted applications to the Ohio Power Siding Board for, for review. So if you combine those 38 projects, it's, you know, it's just over 64,800 acres that are currently under review. Um, and so, you know, it's, again, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that these are acres that are never gonna be able to, to go back into production. But I think it's really important that our lease agreements are, are you know, taken seriously as we think about what's that process going to look like, even though it may be someone else that's dealing with it down the road. Eric, you touched on a lot of great points for landowners to consider. The landowner guide that you guys have is an excellent resource, so we'll definitely link that up. 
Um, we appreciate how you and Peggy and your team has really been on top of this issue from the beginning um, and helped those already involved in contracts even get off on the right foot. I guess with that, uh, what else do you have going on related to solar projects around Ohio? Um, you know, the one thing I, I guess to, to kind of um, maybe throw out there as, as we wrap up, and I, I talked a little bit about, you know, uh, solar being a technology with an inherently low power density, and it, it takes a lot of ground to to generate a little bit of power. And that's that's not necessarily to 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 point out or say solar energy is bad. Um, you know, I think we all have have seen and heard the the many benefits of solar. It's an emission free energy resource, and um, you know, low operations and maintenance costs, no moving parts, no sound, that type of thing. But with any of these energy resources, there's weaknesses. And, and so uh, one of the weaknesses of solar is it takes a lot of space. Um, our, I, I'm partnering with some folks in extension and uh, uh, Christine Gelly in Noble County and James Morris and, and Brown County. And we've partnered with a utility scale solar developer to, to try and look at, you know, how can we minimize the impact of, of you know, land conversion and look at it from, instead of, you know, land conversion, land conservation. And one of the things that we're, we're looking at that we're interested in, we, we have a test site up in Van Wert County where they've actually, the developers partnered with a, a private farm and they built a, uh, a small scale behind the meter project, but they built it to the same specs of the utility scale site. So same modules, same racking, same spacing. And what we've done is partnered with this farmer and we've established a series of test plots to look at different vegetative uh, cover options. Um, so we're looking at some transition crops that, that could get developers kind of through a year, um, depending on you know, when they wrap up with, with their construction. So we're looking at like a crimson clover. Um, we're looking at uh, teff grass, alfalfa, and a cool season hay mix. And you know, really trying to better understand, you know, what what do we need to do differently to possibly manage these these crops um, within the alleyways of a solar site, and then you know also try to to understand what are the best practices for establishing so seeding rates, um, you know, weed control, and, and then also uh, is there a quality there, right? So looking at taking forage quality samples to determine is it a desirable crop that that you know, could have revenue earning potential down the road. Um, you know, that could benefit both local farmers. Um, it could benefit from, you know, when you think about an environmental standpoint by uh, uh, generating, uh, you know, habitat for wildlife. And, and then of course, uh, from a cost standpoint, when you look at the operations and maintenance of these systems down the road. I know that's a big question that I've heard from people in my county too, is, you know, what are the options, vegetative options around these? So I'm glad you guys are working on that. And thank you for your time. Um, if people do have questions, where can they follow up with you? We have a website where we try to, to organize most of our resources. Um, there's a, a shortened link to that. It's, it's go.osu.edu forward slash farm energy. That's all one word. And then um, you know, also feel free to send me an email. My email's uh, romic.2, that's R-O-M-I-C-H dot the number two at osu.edu. Perfect. And we'll put 
those links in the show notes as well. So Eric, thanks again for your time. And we look forward to talking with you about other projects in the future. Absolutely, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Hey, podcast listeners, just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.